We'll go ahead and open up to John chapter 12. We're going to cover the, the latter part of John 12 and then the, the first part of John 13. Originally, the, the first part of this sermon I was going to preach last week, and I ran out of time, uh, so I saved it for this week. And I thought, should we just tack another week on the sermon series, which would be fine. Uh, but then as I looked at the passage, there, there was something that stuck out to me about why I thought it would be good to, to take these two passages together. That being said, it, there's a lot to cover here. We won't go into every single detail. Uh, so if I skip one of your favorite parts, I apologize for that. Have you ever known somebody that just seems to one-up you? In, in any, you, know, you say something and they've just got a better story. I see a couple people laugh. Don't point fingers and don't raise hands. Uh, you know, if, if you got a great score in golf, maybe you got a birdie or something, they come up and they're like, oh, well, I had, you know, five hole-in-ones last week. What? Or, or you, you, you tell your friend, just got a new car. And they say, oh, man, I remember when I bought my Ferrari. And you look at them like, what? How? That's, that's not even possible. You go home, maybe you're working out at the gym. I've heard some people do that. And you, uh, you know, you, you lifted the most weight that you could. I won't put a number on that because I don't know what that is. But, and, and you're like, I just, I just lifted the most I've ever lifted. And they're like, well, the other day I was under my house and it fell and I bench pressed it. <laughs> what? How can you say these things? How is this possible? And you just want to look at them and say, okay, prove it. Show me the evidence for what you're talking about. And I love the Gospels, because that's what the Gospels are. Jesus has amazing claims. I mean, things that that we hear, we go, what? Savior of the world, Son of God, uh, supreme in all authority and power, able to take away the sins of the world. How? How? Come on, prove it. And we look at his life in the Gospels, and we're walking through the Gospel of John, And we see his authority, we see his majesty, we see the miracles. Yes, we hear his teaching, but we also get to see it in action. We see it in how he treats people. We we see it in how he raises the dead. We looked at Lazarus a little while ago. We'll see it again in the cross and the resurrection. Jesus proves who he is. One of the hard things to accept about Jesus is his sovereign power. And I've titled this this message, our sovereign savior. Sovereignty means absolute power, absolute authority, absolute knowledge, absolute control from beginning to end. And that is the picture I get of Jesus Christ in John, absolutely, but certainly throughout all of scripture. He is sovereign. That's a very difficult thing to accept. And and I would say even more difficult to understand. I, I find it a little easier to accept than I do to understand it. And so I want to look at this passage, and we'll start in the first part, uh, 37 to 50, and look at the sovereignty proclaimed, but then we're going to look at this next passage as sort of the the sovereignty displayed. How do we see Christ displaying his sovereign power? And I I hope, like me, at least like it did with me, I hope for you it will really be eye-opening. I want to start with the end of this passage first. So we're going to go to verses 44 to 50, and then we'll come back. This chapter, from the end of chapter 12 to the beginning of chapter 13, forms a transition point in the book of John. It's a transition from the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus out and about with the crowds, walking around the nation of Israel, teaching, preaching, interacting with people, very publicly. 
Now, as we get into John 13 and the remaining chap- remainder chapter, remaining chapters of John, it's much more of a private encounter between Jesus and his disciples. In fact, most of the chapters will be in the upper room, uh, around a dinner with, with prayer and fellowship and discussion between Jesus and his followers. And then, of course, we'll get on into the, the crucifixion. And in this transition... I think John is really using the end of chapter 12 to sum up some important things about Jesus' public ministry. And he uses here at the end of the chapter, verses 44 and onward, Jesus' own words. So let me read this for us. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. I just want to sum up a couple key themes that Jesus is pointing out. Uh, He begins really by saying he is God. When he says to believe in me is to believe the one who sent me, to believe the Father. He is equating himself with God. We've talked about this numerous times in the gospel. It comes up again here. Jesus is equal to God. He goes on in 47 to 48 to talk about judgment for those who fail to believe. There is a a choice to be made. We'll look at that in a second. And there's a consequence to that choice. To fail to accept who Jesus is, is to choose and to head toward this judgment that Jesus speaks about. He also talks about his words. His words matter in verses 47 to 50. This should come as no surprise to us that the words of Jesus matter. I hope we all agree with that on some level. But if we understand this from the Gospel of John perspective, it's even more so. Remember how John first introduced Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the word. Okay, so it's not just Jesus speaks and that's important. It's that Jesus is the message. His, his teaching, absolutely, but his actions, especially the cross, they are the message from God. Jesus is the word. And so what he speaks, what he does, is the very message of God. It matters. And so we need to listen. And it is that message, the person of Jesus Christ, and that message alone that brings salvation. But now, to go back to the beginning of this chapter, or passage here, back to verse 37. Why is it? If if Jesus is so powerful, so important, his, his word is so powerful, so important, why is it some believe, some don't? Here he is at the end of his public ministry. And and there was sort of a a growing swell of people believing in Jesus, but then as time went on, it actually diminished to the point where a lot of people have abandoned him. Why? And so I want to go back to 37 to 41, where John deals with this. Why is it some have believed and some have not? Let me read this. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. 
For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Why do some believe and some not? Is the fact that so many people or does the fact that so many people fail to believe in Jesus here at the end of his public ministry, does that mean he was a failure? And John's answer is absolutely not. That God always knew this was going to happen. In fact, he goes so far as to say God planned for this to happen and that's what I want to dig into here. I want to start in verse 37, he talks about two important things in this short passage. Two very difficult things. I'm going to dig as deep as we can, but, but follow along. The first is, there is a choice that's going on. People are choosing to not believe in Jesus. They are making a choice. A choice for which they are responsible. Verse 37 tells us, even after seeing the signs... Even after seeing the evidence, they are looking at that evidence and going, many of them, no, I don't accept it. The Gospel of John was filled with this idea that many saw the exact same things and yet refused to accept who Jesus is. And he goes to this prophecy in verse 38 from Isaiah 53. And Rather than turning there, let me, for the sake of time, just summarize. That chapter, Isaiah 53, also starts with a similar question. Who has believed? Why is it some believe and some don't? And it specifically is a, a prophecy of the coming Messiah, known as the suffering servant in that passage. And it talks about how people see or will see how the Messiah suffers. They'll see how he lived, and yet many of them will say that he was stricken by God, rejected by God. They'll say, we're not going to believe in him because I, I just don't like what I see. I cannot accept that. And then in verse 6 of Isaiah 53, it says they're going to do what they want to do. They're going to go astray. They make a choice. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see a call to believe. A call to make a choice. We have a choice to make about Jesus Christ. Who is he? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Savior? And, and a lot of people love that truth, that that's, uh, we need to make a choice about Jesus, but there, there's a corollary truth we don't like so much. We're held responsible for that choice. There's, there's a consequence to that choice. There's salvation and being with Christ forever, and there's eternal punishment and death. But throughout the gospel, we see this truth that we have to hold on to. And, and I know... We're digging into some very sensitive subjects here, and some people go, I can't believe he's talking about this, he's saying this. And some of you are going, ah, I don't get it, what's the big deal? That's cool, but let's wade into this together, okay? First of all, is this a theme in John? I want to take you through some verses in John. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. As we walk through these, listen for the call to make a choice, a real choice. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So people are looking at Jesus, and many of them going, uh-uh, no. 
For God so loved the world. You should know this verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him. Watch for that word, whoever. It's going to come up again and again. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes. If if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. Let's keep going. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes, there's that word, whoever, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. And then in this passage where Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman and has this lovely conversation, but then she goes into her village and tells them, and it says, because of what she said, many of them believe. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And this is a powerful concept in the book of John. That, that testimony, proof is given based on or about who Jesus is. And we need to accept that testimony, that proof, and believe in him. But many won't. Let's go on. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. John seven seventeen. John 7, 37 to 38, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. John 20, 30 to 31, and this is sort of the thesis uh, statement, the, the subject statement of the book of John. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, look guys, I want you to understand why I'm writing. So that you can see who Jesus is and believe in him. John's not sitting back going, well, those that are going to believe are going to believe anyway. And no sense in writing. He says, no, I'm going to set forth who Jesus is. We have a choice to make. And, and please hear me, I'm not coming, I'm trying very carefully, and I try this always in my sermons. I'm not here to give you my opinion. You, you should not care what my opinion is, by and large, which is funny because in a moment I'm going to talk about an opinion. But uh, you really shouldn't care about that. What we should care about is the Word of God. I went to school, uh, Moody Bible Institute, downtown Chicago, and my, my uh, degree in school was in biblical theology. Biblical theology, is to sum it up, you read the Bible, you believe what it says. That's kind of the gist of it. Uh, and whatever the Bible says, you believe it. There's a, another type of theology, systematic theology, which is good, it's wonderful. But that kind of is you study a system. You might study Calvin's system, Luther's system, uh, anybody's system. And, and you, you try to organize things. And that's good. But what happens is we come up with our own ideas. We, we organize it in this neat and tidy system. And then we put that on Scripture. And there's sometimes that Scripture doesn't fit so well in our neat and tidy system. I am a firm believer that I would la- rather have my system be a servant to the Word of God rather than the other way around. I see inescapably in the book of John and elsewhere in Scripture... We have a choice to make, and we are responsible for that choice. In our passage here today, and why I'm bringing this up, it's not because I have an axe to grind, it's because I see it in the passage. Why, in 37, is it that some people won't believe? And John says, well, we saw this in prophecy. It was foretold that some would believe the Messiah and some wouldn't. And so we have this clear emphasis 
unavoidable, inescapable in the Gospel of John, there is a necessity for each one of us to look at who Jesus is and make a decision to believe in Him and the corresponding truth, equally inescapable, that we are held responsible for that decision. So I I said originally I want to lay out two truths. So there's the first one. We have a choice to make. Now, now some of you probably are going, amen, been waiting to hear this. We've been talking about sovereignty throughout the Gospel of John. We're still talking about it. Uh, uh, But I've been waiting to hear this. Some of you, my more Calvinist brothers and sisters, are squirming in your seats. All right, now I'm going to make both sides squirm, okay? It's one of my favorite things in ministry. Second, also unmistakable and unavoidable truth in the Gospel of John and all of Scripture is that God is absolutely sovereign. And he is carrying out his plan throughout all of eternity and in the lives of every person that exists. We see this throughout the Gospel of John. I want to walk through some passages. Again, look at the sovereignty of God being emphasized. Same author, same message about Jesus Christ, same teaching. John didn't see these things as conflicting. But let's look. Jesus says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. 6.65, he went on to say, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. John 10.26, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. He, he doesn't say you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says the reason you're unable to believe is that you are not my sheep. John 13.18, I'm not referring to all of you, this is Jesus Uh, in the upper room with his disciples gathered around and he's sort of singling out Judas who's going to betray him. I'm not referring to all of you, but I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture, he who shared my bread has turned against me. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. John 17, 2, this is Jesus praying to God the Father. For you granted him, talking about the Messiah, you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Do you see the sovereignty? you see the absolute authority there? That, that God and, and also equally Jesus Christ are in authority, absolutely sovereign over all things. And so coming back to our passage today, says in, in verse 39, so the first part was they made a choice not to believe. And then verse 39, he says, for this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their hearts and heart or their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. God is sovereign even over their unbelief. And so we have these two truths. And in my experience, dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ, we like to take one. You pick yours, doesn't matter. And we explain away the other one. I think that's the wrong way to handle Scripture. We need to be confronted by both. And in those moments, we say, well, they have to fit together somehow. I think we need to be very, very careful. Who are we? to think we can figure out the mind of God and the way that he orchestrates everything throughout history and all of creation. But 
I don't want to raise this issue and leave you empty-handed. So I said earlier, I'm going to give you an opinion. So here's my opinion. This is what has helped me to hold on tightly to both of these truths. It's not perfect, because I'm not perfect, uh, uh, but, but I want to give it out to you just in case it helps, okay? It helps me to see in Scripture two perspectives, two perspectives to make sense of this, our choosing and God's sovereignty. The first is our perspective. This is where we live in our day-to-day life. How do we make decisions? What do we do today? Do we obey, not obey? Do we share the gospel with somebody or not? Do people accept the gospel or not? This is our perspective. And in our perspective, we have a choice to make. We need to choose to receive Jesus. We need to go out and and present Jesus to others in, in the hope that they will choose to receive Jesus. We have a choice to make and we are responsible for those choices. We must accept Jesus. The Bible talks about that. We we have to believe in Him, trust in Him, accept Him as our Savior. But we also need to understand in great humility, our perspective is always limited. We are not infinite creatures. You're pretty awesome, but you're not God. Our perspective will always be limited. it's, It's like... A two-year-old telling the parent how to be a parent. And, and the parent looking at the two-year-old going, what are you, like two? And how do you, what do you think you know? that I know a little bit more than you. Now, if, if I'm here, and I don't have a two-year-old anymore, I have a five-year-old, but let's say my five-year-old's here, right, in terms of how much I know and how much she knows. Um, you know, Ainsley thinks she's way up here, but she's down here. And, and she loves to argue with everybody. And so she's, she's trying to tell me what I should do, right? Because she thinks she's pretty smart. And I'm not saying she's dumb, but she's only five, okay? Now, now let's put us here. Where's God? Right? Like, to the moon. That's too small. To Pluto. It's not even a planet anymore. But, you know, something way, way out there. The distance in knowledge and understanding, comprehension, power, wisdom, all of that between us and God is is absolutely infinite. So for us to think that we're going to comprehend or or even worse, tell God how he should do what he should do is, is absurd. So we need to grasp that scripture says, look, you are responsible for your choices. You need to make those choices. But we also need to understand there is another perspective, which of course is God's perspective. This is the perfect overarching perspective of the almighty creator who sees and knows all things from beginning to end, the alpha and the omega. And God's perspective tells us God works out all things according to his perfect plan and that no human choice can derail or alter this plan. God's perspective that we see in Scripture teaches us that salvation is a work of God. We are saved because God chooses us to be saved, and He gets all the credit for our salvation. Apart from God's work, we cannot be saved. God's perspective is perfect. So how do we respond to this this tension, these two truths that I think no matter what your standard of theology, whether you come from an Arminian background or a Calvinist background, if you're reading the Word of God, I find these two things inescapable. How do we hold on to both in a biblical manner? The first is, and I say this over and over again, let God be God. Quit taking His job. I, tell, I say that because you don't understand. I tell that to myself constantly. 
Quit taking God's job. Who do you think you are? We need to let God be God. He's very good at taking care of the universe and his plan and everything in between. He's really good at that. We need to recognize we're not. That's not our job. We don't have that authority. We don't have that knowledge. We don't have that position. Also, we need to understand the brokenness of our ability to make choices. We have a choice to make. We are responsible for those choices. But Scripture also gives us this caution. Our will, our reason, our ability to look at all the evidence and come up with a decision is flawed. It's hindered. It's damaged. It's warped and twisted by our sin. So don't think too highly of our own choices. We also need to understand, and this is one that I think a lot of people struggle with, with the sovereignty of God. We have this picture that, like, let's take this passage, John's saying many people don't believe. And we have this picture, like, like there's somebody in this group going, well, I would have believed. I really wanted to receive Jesus as my Savior, but God kept me from it. That never, ever, ever happens in Scripture. Ever. There is no support for that idea, that reasoning, that logic, ever. That does not happen. Because no one can have any inkling of positive thought toward God, any desire for salvation or knowledge of God, unless God works first. We can't. And again, I, I, I try to be fair and balanced in these things, but I, I'm trying to lay out what I see as inescapable from Scripture. But now, oh man, I told myself at the beginning of the service I was going to go faster than last service. That didn't happen. All right. Good news is I had great practice at doing this last service. We're going to look at 1 through 17 very quickly. And we're going to key in on one aspect, okay? So there's parts of this we're going to fly through. But one thing that just hit me like a ton of bricks that I want to show to you. Because some of you are probably really uncomfortable right now. How can, I, how can I trust a sovereign God? How can I accept that? It's a real question. It's a good question. It's a hard thing to understand. The, the, the relationship between God's sovereignty and our choices isn't always spelled out in Scripture. But there is a, a display here of God's sovereignty, Christ's sovereignty, that I want to show you. Because I hope at the end of this you'll be able to say, I don't know about this all-powerful, sovereign God, but I see what his son Jesus did, and I can trust that. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, Jesus is going to do something that is absolutely unheard of, degrading and humiliating. And I want you to see why. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come. He he knows something. And as I read this, I want you to watch for sovereignty. What does Jesus know about who he is and his power and control? He knows that his hour has come. He's about to go to the cross, leave this world, and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus, look at verse 3. This is crucial. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Just stop there. What does Jesus know? He knows who he is. Now, I want to be careful here. We don't have time to go into it. This isn't saying Jesus finally figured it out like, oh, 
I'm the Messiah. I get it now. That's not what this is saying. Okay, he always got it. But John is bringing this into the text here to make sure that we understand why Jesus is about to do what he's about to do and and the basis. The NIV says he knows these things. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. If God, the Father of the universe, creator and sustainer of all things, puts all things under Jesus' authority, that means Jesus has authority over all things. There's, There's nothing excluded from that. So he knows the power that he has, that he's come from God and was returning to God. He knows his position at the right hand of the Father, sovereign in all power and authority, the King eternally. That's who he is. Now at this point, I would think that this would mean that he would stand up and say, hey guys, I'm pretty awesome. You all need to recognize that and and you all better bow down and worship me, and you better give me the great spot at the table, and you better all serve me because I'm sovereign and I'm all powerful. That's what we would do. Maybe I won't put that on you. That's what I would do. That's what our world would do. If, if you want to see sovereignty displayed, it would be displayed by seeking honor and glory and more power. But I love one word in the NIV. Verse 4. So, two letters. He he knows this. And for Jesus, he's thinking, what's the next natural thing? I know who I am. So how am I going to live that out? And and even if you have other passages, I I looked or other translations, I looked at those two. They all have the same idea. What Jesus is about to do is directly dependent upon his understanding of his sovereign power. You want to see the sovereignty of Jesus on display? Look at verse 4. So he got up from the meal. He took out his outer clothing, or off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The sovereignty of Jesus was displayed in a humble act of loving service. I read that some rabbis at one point had a discussion whether it was appropriate to ask anyone to wash their feet. Because it was considered so menial, so degrading, so below everyone, that it might not even be proper to ask anyone to do this. You've probably heard animals would walk through the street just doing their business in the middle of the street, or people would do their business in their homes and they'd collect it in a pot and they'd come out and they'd just throw it in the street. And so as people walked through the street in their open sandals, their feet got nasty let alone the dirt and, and just the smell of smelly feet. And, and it's just disgusting. Jesus gets up knowing who he is, knowing his all-powerful, sovereign might and authority. He knows and he gets up. And it says he takes out his armor, outer garments. And what he's doing is taking on the clothing of the lowest servant. This is the servant the other servants wouldn't even talk to. They go, oh, no, we don't associate with him. He's, he's too below us. That's what he's doing. He's taking that role. And he's grabbing their stinky, disgusting feet. And in his sovereign power and authority, he's washing them. I hope you have a big picture of the sovereignty of God. I really do. But I sure hope that that picture includes a sovereign God that loves you enough to serve you in ways that no one else would. 
And this is just a glimpse. It's a foretaste of the cross that's coming when Jesus would serve us ultimately by taking our sin upon himself. Jesus acts out his sovereignty by serving. Now Peter is is saying, no way. He's responding appropriately. No way, you can't do this. It's so below you. And Jesus says, no, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Simon Peter replies, not just my feet, but my head and hands as well. Typical Peter takes it to the nth degree. There's so much here, but I just want to point out what Jesus is saying. Unless Jesus washes us, unless the all-powerful Son of God is the one who cleans up your life, your life isn't going to be clean. Which means you can't do it yourself. Maybe you're here today and you're going, I'm, I'm too gross to come to God. He can't accept me. Take that passage and look at the sovereign power of our Savior saying, I want to clean you. I'm willing to take the form of the servant. Only I can do it. That's sovereignty on display. He goes on in verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus, knowing who he was in his sovereign power and authority, chose to serve. We must do the same. I'm shocked sometimes, and I said this, and I will continue to say it because I am, it's an aspect, almost a growing cancer in the American church in particular that, that I find difficult and scary. And it's this arrogance among some Christians in the way they interact with each other and the way we interact with the world. And it's almost like, I know more than you, and I'm better than you, so you better just be quiet and sit there and listen, and I'm going to tell you what's what. And then I see a passage like this, and I think, that's not the way the Son of God worked. Did he know everything? Absolutely. Was he sovereignly in control of all things? Absolutely. How did he live that out? He served. And he says to do the same. And I have to wonder, if John links Jesus' understanding of who he is with his service, shouldn't we do the same? If we truly understand who we are in Jesus Christ, that we are accepted by the maker of the universe, that we betrayed in our sin, that we are destined for death and hell eternally, and yet He saved us through His Son, Jesus Christ, we will spend forever in His presence rejoicing in His glory. If we can understand who we are in Jesus Christ, what should be the action that comes out of that? Service. Humble service to one another. And I have to wonder, is my failure to serve, is our failure to serve, possibly because we just don't understand totally what Christ has done for us? So let's look deeply at the sovereign power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let us show that in our life, the proof in our life that that is a reality by serving one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your sovereign will and power and authority 
is a difficult concept. In fact, it's probably even more accurate to say an impossible concept for me to understand. And yet I see it in Scripture. Also difficult is to hold on to that truth and yet also see that we have choices to make. Real choices, whatever that means under your sovereign power. Choices for which we are accountable. And I pray today, according to our perspective, if there is anyone here who has not accepted your son as their savior, may today be the day they make that choice. But God, I also pray that you would enlarge our understanding of your sovereignty. That we would see that the greatest act of the sovereignty of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as this passage points to, was the ultimate service. The ultimate service of going to the cross to take our sin upon himself, the thing we could never do for ourselves, that we might be saved. May we be so confident in our understanding of our own salvation and position in your kingdom through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are free to serve. In your name we pray. Amen.